What is up, fellow thermonuclear AFers? I am Dan Favalli, back with the one, the only, Adam Frommel for part two of our backcourt rankings entering the 2022-2023 NBA season. It was a question we were asked in our Discord. We decided to turn it into a two-part podcast. If you missed part one, we went through our bottom three tiers, which were tier five, tier four, and tier three, or tier six, tier five, and tier four, excuse me. And it took us through the top, the bottom 18, I should say, but all the way up to, to number 12. I will have it on the screen in just a second so you can look at the recap if you did not see part one. But please, go listen to part one. And if this is your first time checking us out, hit that subscribe button on YouTube. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, really help us continue to grow the community. Follow us on all the socials. They are on the screen if you're watching on YouTube. Otherwise, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, uh, they're all in the podcast and YouTube description as well. Make sure you follow Adam on Twitter if you're not already at Frommel09, F-R-O-M-A-L-09. Before we get to our top 11 backcourts, again, it's a weird way to frame this, but there are tier one and tier two backcourt or tier one, two, and three backcourts. I cannot, I can't keep you're track. You're really of struggling with the tiers, yeah. Right. Uh, Adam, how the hell are you since we last spoke roughly 35 seconds ago? Uh, not too much has changed. I'm excited to talk about even better basketball players. Um, something just, it feels different this episode. I think it's going to be a really good one. Hopefully we're just like in the groove and it's going to be so good, but do you want to take us through the, um, let me get it up on the screen first. I'll share everything. Um, and you, you can review, like I said, the, uh, first part of the rankings, which took us up to number 12. So, I'm not going to name them all. Again, the recap was in the first episode, but if you see it on the screen, Tier 6, Tier 5, and Tier 4, we are beginning with Tier 3. Uh, and I'm just giggling because Adam's been changing my Google tab names the entire time we're recording this. So what I had is like backcourt something now says ways to get rid of Julius Randle, Frank Nielakina highlights, best Blink-182 songs. Um, so I'm just giggling because I didn't know. I'm shocked it. you didn't notice it during part one of this episode because I was like fairly obvious about my typing over here. Um, but I notice it now. So did you want to take us through its number, our number 11 backcourt, but it is the start of tier three? Yeah, it feels like there's a significant jump up here. Um, at the end of last episode, we kind of had this four team clump with uh, the Denver Nuggets, New Orleans Pelicans, Chicago Bulls, and Washington Wizards. It feels like there's a step up to the Toronto Raptors with Fred Van Vliet and Gary Trent Jr. Van Vliet, just what a what a two-way stud. Uh, there, It feels like there's nothing he can't do at this point. He's really, you know, doubled down on the breakout we'd seen previously and, and really established himself as a, a true star in the backcourt. Gary Trent Jr., another guy who can fill all sorts of different roles, whether you're asking him to hit spot up jumpers, to create a little bit for himself, to attack the basket, to operate in transition, lower ceiling, but a, a similar guy, which allows him to fit in so nicely with Fred Van Vliet in everything that Toronto likes to do under Nick Nurse at head coach, where they're running a lot of creative sets. They're running a lot of unorthodox schemes on both ends of the floor. And it's a testament to both of these guys that that's able to succeed to the extent that it does. Yeah, I love this backcourt. I did think the Raptors, and still think the Raptors, could stand to upgrade their primary shot creation with someone who is more comfortable hitting and taking off the dribble jumpers, which that's never been Fred Van Fleet's strongest suit. He's become a much better passer. He's a fantastic shooter overall. Gary Trent Jr. doesn't provide a ton of that. Uh, Raptors fans gave me pushback when I said Donovan Mitchell would be a good fit. They, A lot of them, not all of them, but there are Raptors fans on YouTube that think Gary Trent Jr. is better 
than Donovan Mitchell in a nutshell. This backcourt, the dynamic, they're both above average defenders at this point. And in any, like, I would say it would never happen, but in any given season, or we're only talking about this season, either one of them could be an all defensive guard. That's really fucking rare. And the fact that they're both good shooters uh, as well. And then Fred Van Fleet, just, I really do feel like he made sort of a leap as a passer. Um, and then you have the fact that both of them can play off anyone because, yeah, you want Scotty Barnes and Pascal Siakam to have a ton of control over the offense in the half court, essentially. These guys don't need to, like, have the ball. They'll move without it. They'll remain stationary. They can hit those looks. Uh, this is just like a a universal backcourt. Like, their skills just scale to any situation, to any lineup that the Raptors want to roll out there. And I would argue that when you see the names to come, yeah, I think that you could argue to put them over a couple of them, but their ceiling to me, if you wanted to say that, oh, they belong in tier two, I wouldn't like, I would listen to the argument as of right now, we needed that delineation and the names to come, but especially the few backcourts we're about to go through Fred Van Fleet and Gary Trent Jr. could absolutely, their best case outcome could be better than them. Both of us just tend to value the raw, or I don't want to speak for you, but that raw from scratch shot creation, especially from the outside in. And a lot of these backcourts to come are going to have that at both spots where the Raptors just, it doesn't. But again, like I said, the fact that they're both such good defenders at their positions is like, it's sort of, yeah, there, there's a limit on how high up this list they could go, but you could certainly argue for them to be a few spots higher. I struggle with that just because of how high I am on the remaining teams. This next one in particular, which is the Portland Trailblazers of Damian Lillard and Anthony Simons. So, Dan, in case you've forgotten, because he has not played a meaningful basketball game, literally not one, in the calendar year of 2022, Damian Lillard is really fucking good at basketball. Well, and that matters a lot here. check with sources to see if they can confirm. Okay, carry on. Damian Lillard is really fucking good at basketball. And the thing is, Anthony Simons has become the same. Not Obviously not to the same extent, but one of the best pure shooters we saw in the NBA all of last season. Uh, his second straight season above 40% on threes really developed a nice mid range touch started to finish better around the basket could create for himself, could play off the ball. He was just an offensive dynamo, whether he was operating alongside Lillard or as the leader of some of his own offensive units. I'm really high on this backcourt. It wasn't even a question to me that I was going to have them above our ninth place team. So I'm, I was a little bit surprised that you had them both below ninth place and the Raptors. You know, I think there's variance in their performance because they're both defensive weak links at this stage. And when you look at how reliant they both are on hitting off the dribble jumpers, there's the appeal there. But we saw Anthony Simons' percentages on those off the dribble looks kind of dip post all-star break, 25% on off the dribble threes. But the fact that it comes so organically like that, even when he was barely playing in Portland, that was the strength is look at his off the dribble creation and shot making and having Dame out there helps a lot because it's different from not having Dame or CJ out there with you and playing with a version of the Blazers that wasn't trying to win and wasn't built to win, uh, you know, after the trade deadline last year, even before that dealing with the Damian Lillard abdominal injury. So I just feel like there's more risk caked in here, but because Simons is such an unfinished product still. And I think I don't want to say this is a mark of how much you paid attention to the Blazers, if you, but it was based off how you reacted to his four-year, $100 million contract. Not only is the cap going up, but like I said, he has 
I don't want to say he's mastered, but he boasts like the single most important offensive skill set in basketball right now, which is just hitting off the dribble jumpers at a very high clip. Again, I know the percentages started to dip. And if he doesn't come back from that, or if Lillard just looks old all of a sudden, we would have to reevaluate. But entering the 22-23 season, I think this is very clearly, you have a superstar. And he could still, Damian Lillard could still be, until we see otherwise, in any given year, a top 10 player. And you have that right away. Coupled with Anthony Simons, who, given his age, and he did improve as a passer last year, why wouldn't this backcourt be on the rise? I do think the bigger concern would be, well, what do they look like defensively? I think the Blazers have some, with Jeremy Grant, Gary Payton II, Josh Hart, some interesting ways to cover up for them. Uh, but there is a chance, like, if the Blazers have this defensive rating of, like, 125 with those two on the court, you and I would need to revisit this and say, oh, were we just too high on their offensive capabilities? I think that's totally fair. Um, I feel like Simons has done enough that they can actually feel pretty good about what happens beyond Dame, too. Like, he he seems to be entrenched as a Rip City guy through and through now. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. And, like, he's, if they ever do decide to tear it down, he's still young enough to wear. But he, I also would argue he's, like, this major asset on his current contract. Number nine, though, and we are still in Tier 3, the Minnesota Timberwolves with the Angelo Russell and Anthony Edwards. Uh, this one was tough because if you believe, like we do, that Anthony Edwards is a megastar and could be an All-NBA player as soon as next season, where do you put this team? D'Angelo Russell, like, I don't know if he's become underrated, but I think people at least underestimated how effective he was before the playoffs for the Timberwolves last year. And he probably had the best defensive season of his career. And I think he does give you um, some quality decision-making and passing out of the pick and roll. And yeah, there's some like topsy turviness to his efficiency, but he's okay. You know, dribbling into those looks off the, off the dribble, but he's also someone who can play away from Anthony Edwards as well. And this is absolutely a backcourt. I would say even more so than Damian Lillard. I think their floor for Minnesota is lower than it is for Portland than it is for Toronto. I might argue that they have, I mean, we put them higher than these two, so that's not very like spicy, but they probably you have. Did. You did. I did not. Okay. So they have, I, would you say like in this tier three, do they have the highest ceiling of anyone in tier three no. with Minnesota? No? no. Okay. No. Fair enough. I would say that our top team in this tier has the highest ceiling. Yeah, I mean, that's that's actually pretty obvious. Wouldn't agree just statement by me. But yeah, number nine for Minnesota. What do you think of them? I think you nailed it. it to me, it's all about Anthony Edwards. Um, and I, I don't know how high the ceiling can go for him. And I'm not sure that he does. And I don't think the Timberwolves do because he can do absolutely everything. And his improvement has been so impressive to this early point in his NBA career. And really, like, I saw a tweet the other day, and I wish I could remember who it was from because I did not know that I was going to be talking about this on a podcast uh, that was just like, it was asking people if they know who his shoe company is. So I'll ask you, do you know who he's signed with? Who Anthony Edwards is signed with? Yeah. Oh my God, isn't it Puma? I, I'm pretty sure it's Adidas, and you might want to double check this, but the fact that neither of us know that with certainty is a problem. Because this is maybe like the most marketable guy in the NBA, marketable guy in the NBA. And like the NBA should be doing everything it can. And it, you, you verified it was Adidas. It's Adidas. And Adidas wow, should I, be I doing find myself everything. on knowing shit like that too. <laughs> but that, that's the point here is that Anthony Edwards, he has personality just oozing out of his pores. He has some of the most highlight friendly basketball plays you will ever see. 
he is already a star, is going to be an absolute superstar, and he's not being marketed much. It's just weird. And I think that's why, like, maybe we're still selling him short just because of a lack of exposure, aside from what we choose to view on our own volition. But, like, he's really good on both ends already. Yeah, there's still, like, a discipline thing on defense, but he's very disruptive, and I think he was, like, a lot more... The word's not engaged, but a lot more disciplined, I guess, away from the ball this past year. And so I don't know what the limit I'm not I wouldn't put a limit on where he could end up as an individual player. Like, is this someone you can envision being the best player in the league one day? I would say yeah. Yeah. I, think I, so. I don't know. I don't know that I would predict that for anyone, to be honest, but like that is the the best case outcome for Anthony Edwards is he's the best player in the NBA. And that's I'm with you. I, and yet I still had Minnesota below Portland, despite thinking that about Edwards at this point, just because of the gap thing? between Russell and, and, and Simons is, is significant to me. Wow. I'm, I'm all in on Simons too, but that's, that is, I actually think that's a fairly hot take. I had one. Not, do you know, it's not a fairly hot take us putting the Dallas Mavericks with Spencer Dimity and Luka Doncic at number eight, or again, is it? A hot take. Number nine. Excuse, uh, yeah, number eight. I'm sorry. No, like, we both had them at number eight. I didn't know. Luke, we know what Luka Doncic is, and I don't really want to get into it. Like, we've just seen the way he works from the outside in. He's just, he's so good. I don't know. Like, and I'm a, a Spencer Dimwitty believer, but, like, he was up and down with the Mavericks last year. He was bad in Washington. Uh, he has a murky, a checkered injury history. I don't want to say this is purely an exercise in how high Luka Doncic alone can elevate this backcourt. But I don't love the Dinwiddie fit next to Doncic as much as the Brunson fit next to Doncic. And I think if they kept Brunson, I'm not saying Brunson's not the perfect off-ball player. I think he's a much more comfortable fit. And so if you have Brunson in Dallas still, it's like, would you guarantee them like a top five spot? I know the, the names to come are still ridiculous. So maybe maybe you wouldn't. But like they would certainly be higher than I think the next team. So I guess it doesn't drag them down too much, but this is very much, we're talking about the backcourt ceiling specifically of these two. It's can Spencer Dinwiddie do anything away from the ball or can he at least be more efficient as a shooter with the ball in his hands? Or is this very much a guy you just depend on to make some passes, disrupt some defensive plays, put some pressure um, on the defense going downhill. But like, also what is his finishing going to look like? Can he even up his rim frequency, um, which was down last season, uh, which understandably so when you're talking about he's dealt with a ton of injuries through his career and then you're coming back from this partially torn ACL. I, so I get it. Is he going to regain any of it? And he might because he was never just sort of this really explosive player to begin with. He still, I think, can be very effective. I just think the fit is not as like, not as, it's not as clean. And I will say the thing I should note to be fair, and if people skipped ahead, like he did get back to quality rim pressure when he was with Dallas. Like only 21% of his shots came at the rim with Washington last year. 32% came at the rim with Dallas. And I do think that was, it helped was a function of their spacing. When you look at the lineups that were around him and that's not going anywhere. They could still roll out a, a bunch of lineups that are with, with great shooters. Um, so maybe I'm being too low on them here, but this was really just, this was hard for me because I don't know what Spencer Dinwiddie is as an individual player anymore. Yeah, I, I really don't have much to add here because it, it felt like you verbalized everything I was thinking. It is interesting that this, to me, when I was going through my own individual rankings, it felt like one of the teams that was the most difficult to place just because it is the epitome of that, here's one superstar, here's a non-superstar alongside and where the hell do you put them? So for us to both land in the same place, I think it speaks to 
just how highly we view Luka Doncic, but also that there's a good bit of separation between the Dallas Mavericks and the six and seven teams in our rankings, which I think makes sense to unveil at the same time as the Boston Celtics with Marcus Smart and Jalen Brown and the Memphis Grizzlies with John Morant and Desmond Bain. I think the Grizzlies have by far the most upside of any team in this tier. Desmond Bain is just an unbelievable three and D asset who already is showing more off the dribble ability than we expected. The, the defensive versatility and physicality that he offers, I think goes beyond what you typically expect from a three and D contributor. It very much feels like he is one of those classic, so good at your role players that you could be like an all-star even without having a typical all-star skill set. And then John Morant, you know, that speaks for itself at this point where he was, the highlights that he put together were utterly ridiculous. And if you are still held up over the fact that Memphis managed to have so much success, even with him out of the lineup, then you just weren't watching what they were doing when he was in the lineup. Yeah. And yeah, you're right to say that they have the highest ceiling of anyone in this tier. Uh, Desmond Bain is fantastic. And like you said, they gave him more creation responsibility. Uh, and it's nice when you watch things in summer league, like we did in 2021 and they do translate to like that next level. I think with Morant, he became even more dynamic as an offensive player last year. Still remains one of the best decision makers after he leaves, leaves his feet. He is totally unpredictable now with the ball in his hands. He could still stand to be a better three point shooter, but I think he can make defenses pay enough when they want to go under him. Uh, I don't know what the, the defensive ceiling on these two is. I think Bain became like a rock solid defender last, last year. And the fact that he can give you sort of, I wouldn't trust him against fours or super big wings, but he can defend the two or the three and switch on to some ones. Uh, Boston is tough because I don't think you trust smart or Brown to run your offense. Like Brown, there's, there's probably more just shiftiness to his on ball offense now than people really credit him when looking at his mid range jumper ability to get to the rim. And then we know what he does as a shooter, but there's still much to be desired as a passer. We've seen the drips and drabs of him like making these complicated passes, but they never seem to hold or come in bunches necessarily. I think Marcus Smart is probably a better passer and quote-unquote point guard than people give him credit for, but it's definitely not the strongest part of his game. And his he's improved as a shooter, but like the off-the-dribble heat checks can be a little damning. Uh, it feels like Putting them in the top seven, their driving force is very much the defense of these two. Uh, even though I think Jalen Brown is probably on offense exceeded his defense, which is which is great news for the Celtics because he's great at, at both ends. They were actually the toughest, one of the toughest backcourts in this entire exercise for me to place. That is Boston's. Interesting. I, I kind of had the opposite perspective just because it felt like they were one of the few backcourts where we, we basically know what they are. I don't Which think you can like, say that about you, too many between changing pieces and, and players still growing into their skill sets as yeah. opposed to Boston where it's like, this is what this backcourt is. It's really good, but it's not going to look markedly different in 2022-23 than it did in 2021-22. So to wrap up tier three, we had the Raptors at number 11, the Blazers at number 10, the Timberwolves at number nine, the Mavs at number eight, the Celtics at number seven and the Grizzlies at number six. We did get you zoom in so that you did you zoom in so you wouldn't have to look at as many of my tab names. I didn't know it cut off the tabs on it to be <laughs> oh, on it, but yeah, you're looking at piercing parlors near me, which is uh, we've had commenters say I'm too emo to cover the there NBA. Was, there was one other two next to the backcourt rankings on the other side. 
what is what does that one say? Do I dare move this over? Let's do it. Uh, Nikola Jokic porn. Yeah, that's very much. And Frankie Lakina highlights for anyone who's I copied. I copied your whole folder of that last one onto the Google sheet. Number five, and they start tier two for us. The Cleveland Cavaliers with Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell. This is just like they're an offensive dream. Darius Garland kind of has that Trey Young in between game going on. In addition to being able to hit threes, uh, not not as like incendiary from three as Trey Young when you're looking at those deep off the dribble looks, but he can hit a pull up three. He can work well away from the ball. He's played with so many ball dominant guards and players over the course of his career already. Donovan Mitchell, one of the best pull up three point shooters in the game, shot almost 36% on off the dribble threes last year. He, for his career, is above 40% on catch and shoot threes. So if you need to bring that volume up, it'll be fine. I think the argument against them would be defense. Uh, they're both on the smaller end. Donovan Mitchell, I think, could be a lot better when you look at his physical tools. And I think when you look at his rookie season, should be a lot it better. It seemed like, like he was going to be better on defense than offense back then. Right. And obviously, and that's so, not how he's progressed. No. And so this was a no-brainer top five inclusion for me. I campaigned for them to be a little bit higher at one point because I think, and I don't want to spoil, you know some of the other names to come, but like even though they haven't played together yet, there's another, there are two, there are like, there are groups, two backcourts in this tier that have not played a ton together yet or at all. And I think the fit between Garland and Mitchell is just very easy um, to envision on offense. And actually, as I'm saying this, I know you haven't spoken yet, but we should just unveil the other two well, in this I, tier. I think, go, go for it. But I think that what makes Cleveland difficult for me here is it depends on how we're framing this exercise. Because if we're looking at just Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell in a vacuum, then I would probably bump them down to number five in my own personal ballot. But if we include the infrastructure around them, I think that they're in a, in a setup where they can very much have their weaknesses mitigated by Jared Allen and Evan Mobley, especially if Isaac Okoro develops into a capable three-point shooter, where then all of a sudden you have all weaknesses and all strengths in the right spots and whatever defensive woes you do have on the perimeter and at the point of attack, they're more than made up for by what's behind you. So the framing is interesting because if you're looking at this as like we're we're taking the Cavaliers as they are and then isolating their backcourt, we can't really remove Allen and Mobley from the equation. But if we are, then I think there's a case for them being slightly lower. That's fair. So let's look at number four and number three. Number four is the Philadelphia 76ers with Tyrese Maxey and James Harden. And then Atlanta came in at number three with Trey Young and DeJounte Murray. I have a lot of questions about the Murray-Young fit. Uh, can Murray play away from the ball more? And he's like been an okay cutter, and he does have the mid-range game. And I think you can trust that, yeah, maybe he'll hit set threes in higher volume at a fairly high clip. But there's just like some iffiness there because he's not the best off-ball option in the backcourt. And if you need to put him on the ball, that means you need to put Trey Young off the ball. Now, in theory, that's fine. Trey Young looks like he's very scalable to that role, but we've never seen Trey Young in that role in the NBA. And so can he fly around screens and hit um, those quick-fire threes? Can he set screens himself for others and have the offense work that way? What can he do off the ball, or is it going to be more so, oh, we're going to have him at a standstill and hope that DeJounte Murray's dribble penetration um, or that defense is going to overreact to a Murray Collins, a Murray Capella pick and roll, and Trey Young's going to get open threes that way. This works a lot defensively. I want to make that clear. But I also look at it as like, 
look at Trey Young and DeJounte Murray. And now like it gets easier to like decide who's going to get the top assignments, but there are going to be back courts where it gets ultra difficult. Like Garland and Mitchell, for example, Trey Young's going to have to defend one of those dudes. Just looking at the way that the Cavaliers are built. And to me, I had them as the lowest team in this tier, but we debated and we did the whatever and bumped them up to here. It's, when they're in the same tier, it's splitting hairs. I want to make that clear. And even some of the tier separations are splitting hairs. I have the most questions about Trey Young and Murray. I think you and probably most others have more questions about Maxi and Harden, specifically yeah. because of Harden. Yeah, I just I don't know if you if, if it's fair to expect James Harden to be James Harden of old, where I was impressed with the modifications he made to his game after he first ended up in Philadelphia, where he did start looking for his own shot with less frequency, really fancied himself a primary facilitator. And it, and it worked well, and I think he deserves some credit for it, even if we largely focused on the shortcomings and him no longer appearing like the peak version of himself during that stretch run and the ensuing playoff run. But if that's what he is now, then that is potentially an issue relative to these other teams in this tier, where – it's he's still an offensive powerhouse by himself, but if he is not putting the same pressure on the rim, not generating as many trips to the foul line as he did a few years ago, are you taking him off the ball? And then you're limiting his own skill set so that you can let Tyrese Maxey thrive. On the flip side, if you are giving James Harden full control of the ball when Joel Embiid isn't touching it what's happening with Maxi. So it's, it's similar to the questions that you have with the Atlanta backcourt, but to me, they're a little bit magnified. I, I also, it, it's another interesting one where like, if you remove Joel Embiid from the equation, I think things change a lot because you're now talking about a, a backcourt where they're going to be subject to even more defensive attention from the frontcourt players where they're, they're easier to they have an easier time helping off the weak side instead of, maintaining position against Embiid. So it's a tricky one across the board. I mean, there's no questioning the talent where really all six of these guys are obvious all-star candidates. But to me, the biggest questions exist in Philly because of that hardened decline, because of the difficulty that he's going to have, really the impossibility he's going to have of getting back to that previous level and what an acceptance of that new level means for an up-and-coming star who needs touches of his own. I will say the way that Maxine Harden worked during the time that they did spend together makes me so optimistic. You and Maxie was goes from sort of the second most important player on the Sixers and like in that, you know, primary ball handler role to playing off and beat and Harden and he gets into like that shoot or catch and go role and he thrived. He was at 46 plus percent from three after the Harden trade on more than I think five attempts per game at that point, and he's able to get going downhill. And I also think what really helps them is, I don't know, if, I, I feel like I throw this around too much when we're having this conversation, even though we prepared for it off the cuff and it's very fluid. I don't want to say he's underrated defensively, but Tyrese Maxey gets into dudes defensively. And so, like, there's a chance that this de this backcourt defensively is better than the Garland-Mitchell backcourt. And, like, so there's just... There's that element, and I'm also kind of trying to bake in how good I think Tyrese Maxey can become, where even if I think he's the third option, this is still someone who I think you already alluded to this. The East is really deep with guards. I mean, the league is really deep with guards. It wouldn't shock me if he's just getting, like, fringe all-star considerate. Like, he is so yeah, good. Absolutely. And I, I, the other 
uh, demarcation delineation here for us is that I'm just a bigger believer in James Harden. Something about what happened where he just forced his way off his second team. And I don't want to read too much into, we know he's cutting carbs over the off season because he threw his birthday cake off a boat. So that's, that's encouraging. Uh, even if it's totally wasteful of food and it, there's just, he took the pay cut, which I will never advocate for. If a player wants to do it fine, it should never be expected or argued for before their, you know, it's their decision. It just feels like some, like I feel like he understands the pressure he's under entering his age 33 campaign. And it wouldn't shock me if he comes in the best shape we've seen him in a training camp in the past three or four years. We've seen him adapt his game. Like I would say fairly significantly when you're looking at the arrow with Chris Paul and Russell Westbrook. So he's not completely just inflexible and rigid functionally. Um, I'm just not as big a believer in the decline. If this is someone I feel like, you know, Brian Taporic mentioned this when we did the Sixers look ahead. Um, that he probably needs to be more comfortable getting to his mid-range spots if Maury and the Sixers will allow it because it takes less burst for him to create separation there than to get all the way to the basket. Your concerns are valid, anyone who's concerned. He's dealt with some hamstring stuff. And do you want the off-the-dribble three to be such a, a, a cr crutch? I just feel like he, the version of James Harden we saw is not going to be the one that we get, even if it's not Houston Rockets, James Harden. I don't think that's what we're going to see. There's a happy medium. And if you get James Harden, I still think he's going to want... I think... My whole thing is I think he's probably one of the best MVP bets right now when you look at his odds. I feel like this is someone who is still a top 10 to 15 player. Even if there's sort of that regression as a scorer, he's still a transcendent passer. And the way defenses react to the stuff he does off the dribble or the way that he's able to throw passes to shooters or to, um, to his bigs, this is just someone who is still more dynamic and talented and deserves the benefit of the doubt as an offensive player more than it feels like he's getting right now oh that's such a good segue because i was gonna just be a real asshole here and ask you to rank the six players in this tier wow mm -hmm. i i still I'm, no 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 hesitation trey, just go trey followed by harden followed by garland followed by mitchell followed by maxi followed by murray wow you'd have murray last I guess would you put him? I guess you'd put him above Tyrese Maxey. Who else are you putting him above in this? Like that's the only I would player. Put, I would put, I would put him above Tyrese Maxey, like pretty easily. The Tyrese Maxey bandwagon is already full, and I'm not driving it. And justifiably actually... so. But the Dejounte Murray bandwagon was pretty damn full last year. We were all campaigning for him to make an All Star team. No, you were campaigning for him to be an injury replacement on the All Star team, which he ultimately became. And then you ascribed injury like... replacements are people too. They are people, but are they all-stars? <laughs> yes. The only the only all-stars who are not actually all-stars are Dirk Nowitzki and Dwayne Wade as ceremonial selections. Do you Are you ready to unveil Tier 1? So to recap Tier 2, Atlanta was third, Philadelphia is fourth overall, and Cleveland's fifth overall. That made up our Tier 2. Are you ready to unveil Tier 1? Yeah, I'm just hoping we had the players listed right because we struggled with that at first. <laughs> Tier one, number two, the Phoenix Suns with Chris oh, Paul and right. Devin Booker. Number one, the Golden State Warriors with Stephen Clay. I will say I grappled whether we ultimately pivoted to just what we think the starting backcourts are going to be. But if you're talking about the best backcourt combination on each team, I did wonder a little bit if it needs to be Jordan Poole, Steph Curry. I don't know that that drags the Warrior. We have them at number one. I don't think that changes their ranking one way or the other because Stephen Curry is a, is a god. So, but... Adam, that's, please. That's selling him a little short, I think. Here's, I want to, let's talk through it this way. I feel like people are going to, because of the way the playoffs ended, I, I, I feel like people are, are going to believe that Phoenix should not be in tier one. 
I disagree. I want to make that clear. I strongly disagree with that. I mean, I just, I always hesitate to like place too much weight on any one series or any one playoff run because it's just it's it's such an inherently small sample size and just if you watch Phoenix play, it's so clear just the utter mastery that both of these players have over the game at this point where Chris Paul is the point God for a reason. He gets to his spots. He never makes mistakes. He can step up in any moment as we saw in the playoffs where like he has that takeover ability, even at his advanced age in NBA years and Devin Booker, you know, kind of fits into the same bucket at this point where he's going to get his shot when he wants it. But he's also filled so many different roles for the Suns over the course of his career that he's no longer just like forcing the issue and taking these ill-advised shots. He takes them when he needs to and end a shot clock situations when there's an advantageous defensive matchup he's trying to exploit. But he gets his teammates involved. He elevates his teammates at this point. And I think that's the biggest reason that these two are a lock for tier one. Go down the list and find another duo where both players are excellent individuals who also elevate all of their teammates. I don't think that's really going to exist. The I will say the closest that we might get is Cleveland with Garland and Mitchell, but you I was need to say see Trey Mitchell. and DeJounte maybe. Yeah, that's fair too. Um, I will say Devin Booker's probably like the single most underrated passer of the last half decade. It's probably between him or DeMar DeRozan. Would you agree with that? I, I think DeMar DeRozan is one of the most overrated players. Yeah, look at his net rating swing, everyone. Uh, I, I would like to be clear that I, I do not hold that opinion. Yeah, hopefully anyone who listened to that uh, reaction pod knows that neither of us share it. But anyway, I, I'm i like pretty bullish on... I do think the Suns, their offseason was fine, keeping Aiton with what they did. And I, I still think they're a title contender. It does feel like they need an upgrade as the third best... I want. I don't want to say offensive player because if DeAndre Ayton's your third best offensive player and he's playing with consistent force as a play finisher and going up hard around the basket and then mixing in sort of the finesse, it'd be nice to see him work from the outside in a little bit more in second units. But like, however you want to frame it, whether it's the third best ball handler, that can't be Ayton or Mikael Bridges. I don't think it could even be Johnson. It shouldn't be campaign. Um, or the third best offensive player overall, if you don't think it could be Ayton, that roster needs the upgrade. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that Chris Paul and Devin Booker are just really fucking great. And they, these are, where's the other team? How many of the other backcourts have two players who could make an all-NBA team in any given season or next season? I think it's them and maybe the Cleveland. Uh, I get Tyrese Matt, sure. But I don't even think you could say that about the Warriors, to be honest with you, who are at number one. And I'm just curious. Well, I, if we're inserting pool, I could actually see more of a case. Than Clay, and I don't think it changes the Warriors' ranking. So if you think it's Pool over Clay, I mean, we know that's not going to be the starting. It's going to be Clay and Wiggins with Looney and Green and Steph. Like that's no, the I, I I am very much at a point where like, no disrespect meant to Clay Thompson, who's amazing and one of the most lovable figures in the entire NBA. Jordan Pool is a better fit in this lineup. He would push them into even more of a, a, a number one lock for me. Would no, would you in that lineup? No, because like I you think need so. I think, I, I think the, the added rim pressure that he provides is secondary creation. It just allows the Warriors to do so many things that they weren't previously able to do. Where, so, yeah, Clay's shooting is amazing, and he has so much gravity because of that. 
but I think it's more valuable for teams to have to compress when pool drives and kicks out. My pushback there would be, and you mentioned the gravity with clay, just the way he moves away from the ball. And then the defensive concerns, there's definitely been a drop off for clay, but he still had good moments, including in the playoffs has better size and pool can just be absolutely attacked. And I also think when we're just looking at fit, not even talking about weaknesses, the Warriors bench needs Jordan Poole more than the starting lineup needs Jordan Poole. Agreed, agreed, which is why this is the correct starting lineup to choose. I'm just saying if we're looking at two-man combinations, that to me is even stronger. And with that said, I'm going to have to rescind your invite to the Jordan Poole appreciation thread. I've probably always been a little bit lower on him than expected, but he made me look like a fool this past season. He's just like someone who finishes as well around the basket as him. I'm just an idiot. Like, it's just, would you go, we had this discussion. I think I might've picked Tyler hero, but Jordan Poole or Tyler hero. Is it? The answer is oh, probably cool, Jordan. Sure. At this point. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's just tough to, it can be tough to envision at points because I do think hero has gotten more control over Miami's offense than Poole has seen for golden state. And a lot I, of the I time. That's a big part of it too. Is like Jordan Poole. I think what's made his growth so exciting and so impressive is that he's effectively become like a simulacrum of either of these starting backcourt members where there are, definitively Stephen Curry elements to his game. And there are definitively Clay Thompson elements to his game. And he's able to blend those together because he's had that tutelage and been able to operate alongside those two. If you put Tyler hero in that situation, maybe the arguments reversed because he has access to that, that kind of training and that kind of mentality. That wraps us up on the rankings of tier one. I'd like to just recap them quickly. And if we could alternate by tiers, reading them off, I'll start with yep. tier one, number one, checking in at number one. The Golden State Warriors with Steph Curry and Klay Thompson, followed by the Phoenix Suns at number two with Chris Paul and Devin Booker. That is tier one. Tier two, we have at number three, the correct choice, the Atlanta Hawks with Trey Young and DeJounte Murray. At number four, we have the Philadelphia 76ers with Tyrese Maxey and James Harden. Tier five, we have Cleveland Cavaliers with a new look duo of Darius Garland and Donovan Mitchell. Tier three. Number six, the Memphis Grizzlies with John Morant and Desmond Bain. Number seven, the Celtics with Smart and Jalen Brown. Number eight, the Mavs with Dinwiddie and Luka Doncic. Number nine, the Timberwolves with D'Lo and Anthony Edwards. Number 10, the Portland Trailblazers with Damian Lillard and Anthony Simons. Number 11, that rounds out tier three, the Raptors with Fred Van Vliet and Gary Trent Jr. I think we nailed it. That is, that is absolutely, I, I think... There's this was impunable. There's there's no wrong answer. I'm gonna blow through the other tiers very quickly. Then though, tier four we had the Wizards at 12, the Bulls at 13, the New Orleans Pelicans with CJ McCollum and Herb Jones at 14, the Nuggets with Jamal Murray and KCP at 15, Brooklyn with Kyrie and Seth at 16, and then at 17 Miami and Kyle Lowry with Victor Oladipo um, and Kyle. And we have Lowry. questions about their placement even in our own rankings. Right. Tier five was OKC with Giddy and Shea Alexander at 18. 19 was the Knicks with Brunson and Barrett. 20 was the Hornets with Lamelo and Rozier. 21 was the Pistons with Ivy and Cade Cunningham. I already think that was too high, and I'm the reason they were that high. 22, the Kings with De'Aaron Fox and Kevin Herter. 23, the Bucks with Holiday and Connaughton. 24, the Jazz with Colin Sexton and Malik Beasley or Mike Conley. We don't really know. 25, the Pacers with Tyrese Halliburton and Benedict Matherin. That was tier five. Tier six. The bottom tier, number 26, the Clippers with Reggie Jackson and Norman Powell. Uh, the Rockets at number 27 with KPG, uh, KPJ and Jalen Green. Number 28 was the Magic with Markel Fultz and Jalen Suggs. Number 29 was the Lakers with Russell Westbrook and Lonnie Walker the fourth. Number 30 was the Spurs with Josh Primo and Devin Vassell. I remain vehemently against that. Adam forced me to do it, though, against my will. 
Fro, that, I'm, I'm wearing a Milwaukee Bucks shirt, so I feel like I should have given them more respect while recording this. This is hard. You can let us know your disagreements respectfully, please, in Discord. the pod, That link is in the podcast description and the YouTube description. Follow us on YouTube and also wherever you get your the audio versions of your podcast. Download every episode. That's going to help us out a ton. Follow us on the socials. That is in the podcast description and the YouTube description, too. If you've done all of these things, please retweet our promos on Twitter. Shout us out on Twitter. When you see those threads about people looking for podcast recommendations, throw us a tag. Shout us out on Twitter. I will retweet you. I appreciate all the support. I am so excited that I got the podcast with Adam again. Uh, until next time, we leave you to shout out, as always, from Adam and me, from the bottom of our hearts, the one the only, the actual second member of the Mavericks backcourt, which is why they are secretly ranked number one, Frank Nielakina.